Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. So friends, we are in episode two of our new series for the new year on justice. Um, in the last episode, we kind of just talked, uh, gave kind of a description of what justice is and, and how we see it working um, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. And so today, Sarah, where are we going specifically into scripture? Where, where are we diving deeper into? So we are going to start at the beginning of the Bible with how is justice used and viewed in the Torah. So that is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Leviticus, mm-hmm. not necessarily in that order because <laughs> that's off the top of my head. But um, so there are a couple of like really major ways that justice is viewed in the Torah, um, like the Jubilee year, mm-hmm. uh, the eye for an eye, and uh, sanctuary cities. Okay, so this is a reminder, like the, the what we have as the Torah, what's sort of thought of as the law or the the, the things that are framed as commandments that Moses gives to the people. Um, are at least framed in the Bible, like this is a set of a whole way of life. Mm-hmm. And so there's not a distinction the way we might want to do between, well, this is criminal and this is uh, social and this is economic. There's this, this is God's way of life for all of us and that all these things kind of hang together. We kind of like to imagine that we can separate out the things we like. We tend to live our lives like salad bars. <laughs> um, and the the Hebrew way of thinking, the, the, the way of life in the Torah, sort of a, it all hangs together. And the way mm-hmm. we treat other people in criminal life affects how we treat each other economically, the way we treat neighbors, all that kind of thing. So um, even though these might sound like three separate topics, in the, in the bigger sense of the Torah, like these are all part of a way of life lived together. Um, and uh, I, don't, I don't know where in particular you want to start among any of those threes. Do you have a, a wish? I do. Um, I want to talk about sanctuary cities first, because I think while you're reading through the Bible, that's probably going to be the first... That shows up. That shows up. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I guess you could make an argument that uh, eye for an eye. So, Genesis starts off with, um, well, first creation, and then Adam and Eve get kicked out of Eden, and then after, shortly after they leave Eden, they have um, they have sons. And then Cain and Abel get into it. Cain kills Abel. uh, And then Cain is very concerned about, Mm -hmm. now people are going to come and kill me. And God says, no, 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 don't worry about it. I put a mark on you. If anybody kills you, woe be him who, you know, does such a thing. uh, You are safe. Um, And then not too long after that, like just within a few generations, another man kills another man. Um, and I don't remember their names, but the second murderer is really concerned that, you know, that he's going to be even worse off than mm-hmm. Cain was. And so God gave the commandment of, here are these cities that you can go to. They are sanctuary cities. You can go and you will be safe from your pursuers who will be seeking your life in payment for the life you took. So yeah, I, I like the way you laid it out. That like that both the idea of retribution and the idea of a place to run to avoid retribution like spring up in the same biblical set of episodes, mm-hmm. um, and that one necessarily begets the <laughs> the other. I guess that once there's this terrible crime that's committed, and the 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 way the biblical story sort of tells Cain and Abel, and then later on it's the story of Lamech, is the guy who's. Uh, uh, 
declares if Cain gets avenged sevenfold, then Lamech will be seventy-sevenfold. There's a lot of early bragging about justice and vengeance. Mm-hmm. But, like, clearly the Bible sees the, the killing of another human being as this grave, grave tragedy that this is, you know, destroying someone who's made mm-hmm. in the image of God. I mean, like, the, the Genesis 1 sort of goes to great lengths to say human beings are made in the image of God. It's a big deal to take somebody else's life. Um... And so this is serious, and Cain is so afraid someone's going to kill me. Although it's interesting, too, that's another one of those unanswered questions in the Bible, that at this point we've been introduced to four humans, Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. One is dead. Who's left is going to, is Adam and Eve going to kill Cain? And it's just sort of left as, you know, someone else. Okay, someone else. Well, they they also get wise shortly after that. Right, yeah, so it's another one of those unanswered, okay, got it, this is just how the story goes. Uh, A a winking sort of a haunt. There's more going on here. So... So th- this this idea of sanctuary city- cities really perplexed me as um, as a kid. Yeah. Because um, Genesis was my favorite book of the Bible when I was growing up. Um, but I didn't understand why God was allowing these two men, Cain and then what was Lamech, Lamech, Lamech mm-hmm. to, to avoid punishment. Um, because to me, it very much made sense of, oh, you killed somebody? Your punishment should be the same, should also be mm-hmm. death. Like, that's that's where my brain was was going. And then um, I think I asked, I think I asked my pastor about it once I joined the Lutheran Church. Um, and this was in confirmation class, so confirmation age Sarah, 12-year-old Sarah. And um, my pastor, I think, said something along the lines of... Um, if somebody had killed Cain or, I keep forgetting his name, Lamech, <laughs> that that would be just as bad. That, he, that, that, that new person would have then also been guilty mm-hmm. of murder, of taking somebody's life who was made in the image of God. And so then, where does the cycle end? By having these sanctuary cities, having these mm-hmm. places of refuge for these murderers to go to avoid death, um, death at the hand of another human, then that was saving that other human from committing this great sin. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, just because you're killing as a punishment because he killed somebody else, that doesn't make you innocent of the blood that you have been mm-hmm. shed. So the, the the idea of having a place to run where you could theoretically avoid getting killed yourself uh, gets spun out and actually becomes encoded later, not just in a story. Because like the stories of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, you can sort of treat like, well, they're exceptional, they're stories. But later on, it gets codified in the Torah of there are going to be cities where you can go to. And in like, for example, in Deuteronomy 4, there's this list of if someone has accidentally committed manslaughter. And so it's, like, it's, a, grave, it's a grave issue. Somebody's died, but this wasn't like a plot premeditated, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a murder. But if someone has committed manslaughter, uh, you can go to one of these six cities and there's no questions asked. You go there and they will take you in and you will be avoid you you they won't be able to come and get you and you just start a new life kind of a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it, what's interesting to me is that the the Bible, the, the Torah, which again in other parts can be very, very clear on here's the punishment. Kill people for this and this and this. There's capital punishment for and there's a long list of things, including your children disobeying your parents. I mean, like, it's a, it's a much longer list than, than many people would be comfortable mm-hmm. with today. And I'm guessing it's not they have a two and a half minute timeout like my son gets. Yeah, there's no timeout talk at all <laughs> in, the, in the Torah. Uh, and there's a long list of capital offenses. But, and side by side with that, there's also, but 
there's going to be times where somebody has died, and yet this is this this isn't something that someone should uh, be put to death for. And there's a, a another mechanism that's given mm-hmm. because it seems to recognize that killing the perpetrator wouldn't really restore or mend anything. This wasn't somebody who intended harm or something like that, but this was an accidental kind of a thing, or they didn't, you know, whatever. But it's interesting to me that the Bible sort of makes that a part of what justice looks like too. That mm-hmm. there are built-in I don't want to say trap doors, but like almost escape clauses where like, yep, sometimes there's a very rigid, mm-hmm. here's what the punishment is, but you can also go here, 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 and start a new life in these circumstances. But those sanctuary cities that then get codified mm-hmm. are for, like you said, accidental deaths. Right. You know, like you're, I don't know, you're tossing a rock back and forth, you hit the guy in the head. Yeah, right? yeah. Got, a game of I mean, toss the rock, sure. <laughs> I, I don't know, but I mean, I'm just, you know, trying to t- come up with something. Yeah. It's an accidental death. But then there is also, though... That justice and that punishment, where um, for for murder, right, 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 you know, and so how how do we deal with that in the Old Testament, where you know one person can get off, you know, it's right. manslaughter. I mean, we have that still today, you right, know. Right, right. Um, yeah. To be clear, there are punishments in the Bible where like punishment is death. Yeah, yeah. like it's it's not like I'm not trying to make the case that there are no punishments in the Bible where death is the answer. It's just um, it's interesting that the yeah. Bible, being fully aware of sometimes mm-hmm. the, the Moses command is put someone to death for X or Y or Z, mm-hmm. also says, or in this instance, you can run away to this city, yeah. And, and I think that's, it's, it's, a, it's a good question to ask about how do we, how do we deal with this. I, I think maybe the, the, the first thing, I'm glad that we're having the conversation, is even if it feels like it's complicating things, I'm glad that we're complicating things mm-hmm. for folks because I don't think we often take the time to realize just how... I guess rich the biblical text is on how it deal. We sort of, if you got familiarity with the Old Testament law at all, it's probably oh well, that's just there's a long list of things you're supposed to kill people for. Well, true, but then there's also mm-hmm. this, 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 and this. I think the other piece, and maybe this is where we need to address that that whole underlying logic that's sometimes called the lex talionis or the law of retaliation mm-hmm. that gets summarized as uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right? If somebody punches you in the face and you lose a tooth, you're allowed to punch them out and take a tooth as well. They take an eye out, you're allowed to take their eye out. And we often, I think, sloppily hear that as permission giving for what you're supposed to do when they are, that's intended to put limits on how much revenge is allowed to be taken. Yeah, so and if somebody takes one eye, you're not allowed to take, take both, both eyes. Right, right. and that, that exactly it. And that these commandments are given not to an era where there is a police force and a civil government where there is people who can regulate mm-hmm. and you know do law enforcement. These are basically bands of, I mean, this is said in the story that these are a bunch of freed slaves who've been under Pharaoh's boot for 400 years and are learning how to be their own independent people. Mm-hmm. Pharaoh's system was terrible. It was Pharaoh didn't like what you did or you know he thought you were smart mouth and he'd kill you. Um, so okay, that's not a good choice. Anarchy is not a good choice. What will we do? Mm-hmm. Well, there's limits on what kind of revenge you can take. And the idea was to place limits on human cruelty and violence, not to endorse it. And a good example of why this is necessary is um, with the Netflix original show, The Dragon Prince. Oh, please tell us. So, in The Dragon Prince, obviously a fantasy world where there are dragons and elves and humans, all... In a monarchy, it sounds like. Yeah, not very well coexisting. Um, A human um, queen and her people, like, a couple people, like, went into the magic realm, which is, like, separated by, like, rocks, like, uh, mountains. Uh, So they, they went into the magic side... 
which I can't remember the name of, and they were trying to get a magical artifact to help relieve a drought. And since humans aren't allowed on the magic side, uh, the Dragon King was trying to push them back out and killed the queen. Mm -hmm. um, and so in retaliation, her king and uh, dark mage sorcerer person went back into the magic realm and killed the dragon king and while there stole the egg of the dragon prince. And so because of that, the elves came and invaded the human side and had um, plans to assassinate the human king and their prince. And so it just kind of, it's this like, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger mm -hmm. as people try to keep re like having revenge and it's just like, oh, I did this bad thing so they're trying to revenge against that so because they didn't harm me in this way I'm going to have revenge and do this mm -hmm. and, it, yeah. and it quickly like spirals out of control and involves more and more people and more and more people get hurt. It's interesting to me how like when, you, when you're reading or watching a story told and it's through the lens of fantasy, like whether it's the Dragon Prince on Netflix or Game of Thrones or pick a fantasy TV show or something like that, we can see that pattern and can acknowledge, boy, how foolish it is when people sort of start that cycle of violence, mm -hmm. but nobody wants to recognize how we have done that repeatedly mm -hmm. in human history without dragons. Like, mm -hmm. that that's, you know, uh, Northern Ireland, the Catholics against the Protestants, and very quickly, this wasn't about who first started it, but we're, we're getting revenge for the most recent thing you've done, and you're getting revenge on us for the most recent thing we did, and there's no end to it. That the, the intention behind the law of retaliation in the Torah isn't to encourage that kind of cycle of violence, but mm -hmm. to, to limit it, to put a, nope, this is where it stops, and we're not going to devolve into, I kill you, and then you kill me, and then we route a raiding party to go kill your mm -hmm. people, that kind of, there's a limit to it, and it's beginning to put boundaries on how much we can do that in the name of justice, quote-unquote. Um, in a way, almost like, um, there's the, the command in the Torah also about uh, permitting divorce, right? And there, so there's mm -hmm. this line about uh, whether you can divorce. In, in this case, it talks about a man may give a, a certificate of divorce, of, of divorce to his wife. And later Jesus gets asked about this, uh, and the people asking him kind of have this edge of like, you're allowed, you're encouraged, Moses commands us to divorce our spouses when we want to, right, Jesus? And Jesus' response is, no, that was, well, number one, never the intention. Mm -hmm. And number two, it's meant limiting how you're allowed to end relationships it's not to encourage it. And I think in a similar way, the Torahs talk about retaliation. It's meant to be this sort of limiting our worst impulses. Um, this is sometimes what theologians talk about as the first use of the law. The, the, the laws in the Bible uh, are there to curb our worst selves. Um, and that uh, a lot of times we can't just be appealed to with, you should do the right thing because we're stinkers. And we mm -hmm. say, well, I know the right thing to do, but I think I could get away with killing somebody or stealing from somebody or taking their stuff or whatever. So the, the idea of a law of retaliation, I think to ask, to get at your earlier question, uh, Erica, about um, what do we make of that there's such a command for these capital mm -hmm. you know, punishments is that even at that, it's a sense of this is meant to limit how much revenge is allowed to be taken, not that it's um, some invisible force requires there be a certain amount of blood. You know, like later Shakespeare mm -hmm. will do that with the character Shylock who demands a pound of flesh. But that's not really how the Bible sees it. Uh, that's not really how the Torah even sees it. This is meant to limit revenge, I think. Yeah, I see sanctuary cities, you know, um, for those accidental deaths, the, those manslaughter deaths, you know, 
this is an accident. This is mm-hmm. was not intentional and everything. The the capital punishment for somebody intentionally taking another life is to keep that person from then taking sure. even a second or a sure. third, you know. And there I think it's sort of like we talked before about the, the image of like uh, when doctors have to amputate. It's mm-hmm. not to punish the foot that they have to cut off. Like, oh, what a bad foot you are. I'm punishing you. But, and it's, it's a sad, terrible thing when it has to happen. But it is meant to limit the infection from spreading mm-hmm. further. And I think, again, that's at least part of what the idea is in the Torah. That when there are things that are prescribed as capital offenses, someone should be put to death over this. They are intended to be things that are so serious or so grave that we can't risk the danger spreading, either affecting other people mm-hmm. or um, uh, infecting all of society. Yeah. Now, the other uncomfortable thing, as you mentioned, is that we nowadays might feel like we have a different list of what things are that serious. And mm-hmm. we might not say children disobeying their parents is an automatic stoning. Um uh, and that makes it difficult because, well, the Bible says, and on the other hand, if this is meant to be limits on what you're allowed mm-hmm. to do, then instead of saying, oh, well, the Bible says I have to kill my kids because they were smart mouthy to me. No, I'm not supposed to do more. You know, like there, mm-hmm. there's limits on what, the, uh, on what the, the amount of bloodshed is or the limits on what the violence is supposed to be. Um, there's a, another piece that is worth talking about that comes out of the Torah as well that maybe we could talk about as well. And it's kind of woven into several strands of the uh, whole Pentateuch. And it's the idea of Sabbath year and Jubilee year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And maybe refresh us on what the concept is. So, it, it, so similar to how we are supposed to take Sabbath, that when God created the world, um, you know, the story was done in six days. Like, God created the world in six days. And on the seventh day, God rested. And even if God takes a rest, then so should creation. And so when we work, we are supposed to take rest. We are supposed to take the Sabbath. Um, Likewise, so should the land. If Mm -hmm. the land is working, the land should have the opportunity to take a rest. And should, you know, um, we have, uh, and so in our farming techniques now, we have crop rotation so that, um, that the land will, uh, some crops take certain nutrients out of the ground and put back different nutrients when it decomposes. So crop rotation allows for the earth to continue getting the nutritions that it needs. So corn and soybeans are a really popular crop rotation where I grew up um, and here that if you plant corn one year, the next year you should plant soybeans because they take and give back the right balance of nutrients. Um, Other times, farmers will allow for fields to have a fallow year where they don't plant anything. And that, again, allows for the earth to rest. Uh, Usually some natural grasses pop up. um, And that is part of what it means for a Sabbath year or Jubilee year for that ground. And so different places in the Torah have, like, they describe what a Jubilee year should look like. And usually, like, it's every seven years and then every... Like seventieth year or something is fifty. So there's seven. There's seven sets of seven. It's forty nine, and then you get an additional year that's a jubilee year. Okay, and that's year fifty. Right. Mm -hmm. So, like, lots of things happen in jubilee year. Like, debt is uh, forgiven Mm -hmm. if you are a slave because you went into debt. um, You are freed. Um, The crops get a rest. Animals get a rest. Like, 
lots of different things happen during Jubilee and during Sabbath years. And land was supposed to get redistributed too. The, mm-hmm. the yeah. commandment in Leviticus is that uh, if your land, for example, if, if you had you know gone into debt and you had to sell your land to somebody else, the idea is that the Jubilee it goes back to the original mm-hmm. family with the thought that no family, no household is permanently without a means of sustaining themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, that meant also that there were structures at least commanded, whether they practiced them is another question, but commanded in the Torah that would prevent anybody from gobbling up all the land and owning it everybody when somebody else has a bad mm-hmm. year and you get to take their stuff forever, um, and then them never having a way to sort of get back on the horse or start over again. Um, it was a way of also preventing past generations misfortunes or mistakes from affecting mm-hmm. kids and grandkids forever too so that nobody is permanently behind the eight ball you know like if my dad had a bad year and had to you know the, the farm had to be foreclosed on and then that means i grew up without an inheritance well then what are my kids going to do of course we're going to turn to a life of crime we're just shady people mm-hmm. like me and, you know um but like that the, the, the system designed in the in the torah is meant to prevent those kinds of things from happening and that every 50 years there's a reset mm-hmm. where debts are canceled where land is meant to go back to the original families and tribes. Um, And the idea, the vision was restoring things, putting things right again, and it would have prevented there being a vast, vast disconnect between the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor because there would have been this sort of reset kind of a thing. Um, And there's also, for that matter, provisions we'll have to talk about later on for people who don't own any land at all. What do we do? Well, there's provisions for how you take care of them as well. But what I think is so fascinating is the, the, the setting of the Torah is, it assumes most everybody is an agrarian society whose job is you know, growing your own food for your family. So the idea of re- redistributing the land is about how do I make sure I can feed my kids and mm-hmm. you know, manage my family? Oh, well, I've got to have enough land that will produce for, you know, for my household and then I can give to my kids and their children and that kind of thing. And that this, the, the whole idea is it's tied to everybody should get to eat. And that the, the whole notion of Sabbath year and Jubilee year is about restoring mm-hmm. in that way that in the end, everybody should be able to feed their kids and nothing should for so long be allowed to get out of whack that some people have so much food spoiling that they can't, you know, that it, mm-hmm. it goes bad in their pantry and other people are scraping and get by. So, so this is a really unique thing to Israel. Like, yeah. clearly, we don't experience this much beyond, like, letting crop rotation and letting our fields go fallow for one year. Um, we don't experience it. The cultures around Israel didn't experience mm-hmm. it. This was unique to Israel. And I think that that is a good indication that Israel prioritized people over property. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More so than other cultures who prioritize property. Yeah. That mm-hmm. what belongs to me belongs to me. And once I own it, I own it until I do not. Um, and that if I lose something because of economic disaster, then I've lost it mm-hmm. forever, think, and somebody else has gained it. I think an important piece of that is in the the, the mindset of the, the Torah is that everything is fundamentally God's, and that things are mm-hmm. then entrusted to us to take care of, but that there's nothing I permanently get to say, this is mine forever. No, I get to use this, and maybe I use this for some time or for my lifetime or whatever, but I mean, God makes a regular point of saying throughout the Torah, the whole land is mine, the whole earth is mine, and you're mine, mm-hmm. and therefore take care of each other, value people over your stuff, but also the stuff isn't even yours permanently either. The stuff is something I've given you or I've made possible because you're my people and not because you get to own it forever. Well, when Israel moves into the promised land shortly after the Torah, mm-hmm. Um, and if you read scripture chronologically, 
you know, God sets aside certain plots of land throughout Israel for the different tribes. Right. And if they practice Jubilee, which we have no real evidence of the people of Israel actually doing right. this, right. this helps those 12 tribes to continue to keep that land. Mm-hmm. So that then one tribe isn't then eventually overpowering another tribe, right. which, you know, because the 12 tribes came from 12 brothers, it just might happen. <laughs> well, exactly. And like that, how much of human history has been us fighting over whatever was the most important resource at the time. Mm-hmm. And while, you know, uh, in more recent eras, it's things like oil or fossil fuels, uh, and maybe there was timber in another area or mining or things like that, in an earlier era where everybody's an agrarian mm-hmm. society, land where you can grow stuff is the most important resource. And therefore, it makes sense that, that God's we're not going to let this become a, uh, a place where we fight over territory. And that that's part of why I think, as you said, Sarah, Israel was supposed to be different. And in its best moments, it understood we're supposed to live a different way and model for the rest of the world a different way of living, a different kind of... Of, of justice, really, of uh, where our concern for the well-being of the neighbor and of the whole mm-hmm. community is more important than me getting more stuff or me hoarding a bigger mana pile. In a sense, I think those rules about Sabbath year and Jubilee year are taking the lessons from the wilderness years about the manna that's given out every mm-hmm. day. And if you take too much manna, it starts to stink and it starts to breed maggots. Um, the intention is learn the lesson. You, there's enough for you and there's enough for your neighbor don't grab more than you need because that's not necessary and then they go hungry and then when it becomes land every so often we're going to hit the reset button so that people can uh, again the next generation can feed their kids um, it, it's interesting to me like I grew up hearing about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth like that was like and again I'm not saying like I got lectures like that from my parents but like that was in the atmosphere that people know that it was not until I was in college that I'd even heard the idea of Jubilee mm-hmm. Year. And most of the conversation I heard in college about Jubilee Year was, well, isn't it good we don't have to follow that rule anymore because it would prevent our ability to make more money? <laughs> um, and it's it just like, wow, like the, the biblical writers don't see it that way. The burden is, a, oh, how terrible to have to have the Jubilee. They saw it mm-hmm. as... This is good news because if you're somebody who's had a bad run of luck, it means your kids aren't doomed to have nothing. And, Steve, you mentioned you know the manna and that trust in God, that the manna that you pick up for the day will last you for the day, and you know the manna you pick up for the Sabbath will last you through that. Isn't the Jubilee year also a sense of trust on, on both sides of it? When I was first thinking about this as you were talking, I'm like, that's a really a sense of trust for those who have gained more land to be able to then live on less. Mm-hmm. But it's also a trust in God that those who have lost their land over the years will eventually be able to live on it again. like, And just that level of trust that uh, if we actually follow God's way, that God will continue to provide for us. Yeah, we might have had a few bad years, whether that's been one or that's been 49 years that have been bad. God is going to still provide for us at some point in our future. It's interesting to me how... It, it seems, this is one of those half-formed thoughts, I poke back if this is either heresy or impossible or something stupid, but like, it seems like, as a species, we human beings have this like, unspoken rule of once I touch it, I should it should be mine forever, mm-hmm. and like, if it was, if I ever owned it, it should be mine forever, and if I lost it and someone else got it, well it was once mine, so it should be mine again, and the, the Torah sort of corrects against mm-hmm. that, as if to say, there will be things that are in your possession and nope, if, if it's a bad year and you have to sell the property so you can get enough cash to buy food for this year, that may need to happen. But that won't be forever. And the mm-hmm. people who bought up your land, they don't get it forever either. The idea is to keep 
uh, a balance and that, mm-hmm. that, that jubilee or justice is about that restoring of right relationships so that not, you never get to a point where there is just a very, very few who control everything and a bunch of people have nothing. Because, again, mm-hmm. I think in the shadow of all these commandments is the remembrance of Pharaoh's Egypt. Because, I mean, the whole yeah. system in Pharaoh's Egypt was Pharaoh and a very small number of people under, under Pharaoh's immediate control uh, possess everything. That, that's part of how things go with the, the famine in, in Joseph. The people sold all their land and Pharaoh got it and he doled out grain to them. And there was never an end to that. It was just Pharaoh mm-hmm. kept it all. And how do you not become that system again? Well, the idea here is um, every so many years, every seven years the land rests and debts are canceled. Every 50 years we have the land go back to its original family owners. It's to prevent that kind of a scenario where there's a handful of people who control everything and other people are left not being able to scrape enough uh, money or food together to feed their kids. It does seem important to me that this is a part of what the Bible has in mind when it talks about what justice looks mm-hmm. like, and that justice is about not, again, this is not about punishing crimes. It, it's not like if you're the one who bought up somebody's property because they had to, for, it got foreclosed on, that's not a crime, it, it's, a, it's a legal thing to do, but that justice meant at some point you have to give it back because it's about right relationship in the end. And if, if our mindset is immediately justice is always about who did a crime and who are we punishing for it, this won't make any sense, and, and you'll say, well, why should I practice Jubilee? It's not wrong to buy somebody else's land. No, it's mm-hmm. not about what's wrong in the moment, but it's about how do we correct things eventually, how do we put things back in balance, or to restore the way things are meant to be. And restoration means that everybody gets to eat. Everybody gets a place to live. Everybody, you know, might not be quite completely equal, but everybody has the right to equality. And that that notion that... Um, Everybody gets to eat is like the defining characteristic, mm-hmm. I think, of God's vision or God's kind of community. I think that that's important, that in the end it's um, making sure our daily bread gets you know, uh, given and that there, there's this, uh, it's not just you have a right to exist, but that God has provided enough for everybody to continue to live. Um, that's, an important, that's an important thing. It goes back to the man mm-hmm. in the wilderness, this literal daily bread. If we're followers of Jesus, we're taught to pray. Give us our daily, daily bread with that mm-hmm. sense that it's, it's in the plural. That it's not mm-hmm. give me my daily bread. Who cares if my neighbor goes hungry? But that I'm asking God would not only provide for me, but for my neighbor as well. Um, and that means I'm not allowed to just ignore and go, well, I've got my needs covered. Who cares about anybody else? Mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't allow us that, that possibility. I, think. I don't think the Torah does either. So three seemingly disparate strands together, the law of retaliation, the uh, cities of refuge or cities of sanctuary, and um, the, the laws of jubilee and Sabbath here, and yet they're, they're woven together like a braid almost in, mm-hmm. the, in the scriptures, that they all were part of a whole way of life that included how do we put things right when someone has harmed another human being, how do we put things right when somebody's land or means of feeding their family is out of whack, and what do we do in those situations where we want to prevent revenge from getting out of control? All those really do have to do with what justice is all about, it sounds like. Yep. So, join us for further conversations about different angles on what justice looks like in our next episode. See y'all. Bye.